Hello, and thanks for downloading episode three of This is US Sustainability from the US Sustainability Alliance. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and on this episode, we're putting innovation and technology under the microscope. Uh, We'll be looking at differing approaches between the US and Europe, and how technology could play a big part in sustainable food production, particularly in Europe's so-called farm-to-fork strategy. Uh, Joining me online, I'm thrilled to welcome, firstly from Paris, Marie-Cécile Demarve, who is Head of Innovation and international affairs at probably the oldest French agricultural think tank, Agriday. We'll get Marie-Cécile to explain a little bit more about the work that they do shortly. Uh, then from Washington is Benno van der Laan, um, an expert in government relations and issues management who has worked with American farm groups for more than 25 years on international market access issues associated with agricultural technologies. Now coming up in this episode, we'll also hear from two US farmers about their use of technology. Uh, we've got soybean farmer Monty Peterson from North Dakota, a strong advocate for GMOs. And then wheat farmer Peter Vidson, who is based in northwest Minnesota. And Peter will share his experiences of precision ag and other technology innovations on his farm. Uh, So lots to discuss. But before we get into the main debate, Marie-Cécile, I thought we could start by you telling us a little bit about your background and also about Agrodays. Thank you very much. I'm I'm thrilled to be part of this program. My background, actually, I'm an agronomist. I also have a Bachelor of Science in Biotechnology. I am the Head of Innovation and International Affairs in the think tank Agriday, as you said. We are uh, probably the oldest think tank in agriculture in, in, in France because we were created in 1867 by farmers and for farmers. We're an association. I work in this think tank as an expert in technological innovations with an international perspective. I've, I've worked in Agriday for eight years now, and before that, I used to work for the uh, USDA office uh, in Paris, in the American Embassy in Paris, where I was a market analyst. Just a few words about Agriday, who we are, what we do. So we're a small team of less than 10 people, 10 experts, actually. We try to engage and share reflections and recommendations on strategic issues, to help decision makers seize opportunities to address the challenges of the 21st century, Uh, not only in terms of um, food security, but also, of course, fighting against climate change and very importantly, meeting consumer demands and trying to fill this gap between producers and consumers. And what's the view of European farmers when it comes to the use of technology on their farms? I think most of them are really enthusiastic uh, about technological innovations. Uh, They already adopt a number of innovations on their farms. I think agriculture has always adopted innovations. I'm thinking machinery and equipment, for example. Farmers are well equipped both in animal production and plant production, both crops, fruits and vegetable production. They're all embarking in this. I'm thinking also for the past, let's say, 10 years, the the development of digital technologies is really big in Europe. There are some countries, including France, Germany, the Netherlands, that are really embarking and and adopting digital technologies to to make uh, agriculture more precise. And this this is a real trend. It's difficult because... Actually, the difficulty now is for farmers is to choose the right service and, and the right company that is the most adapted to his or her own situation because the supply is so is so big, actually. So, um, yes, there are actually a number of, of opportunities to seize so that farming can, can really change in Europe 
and be more adapted to consumer needs. Uh, consumers who are no longer only consumers, but also citizens, they make choices according to some values when they purchase food. And, and it's important that farmers have access to technologies in order to, uh, to respond to these demands. Benno, let's uh, let's bring you into the podcast. Um, as I said in my intro, you've worked with growers in, in the US for nearly 25 years. A, a part of that work, you've talked to many Europeans about why and how American farmers use numerous technologies. And, and we often hear that the US and the EU farmers have differing views on technology and innovation. Are they really so different? Um, to answer your question uh, directly, I, I think actually farmers, no matter where in the world they operate, they often have the same perspective on this. They want to have access to the best tools available. They want to improve their yields. They want to improve the quality of their crop while taking care of the land, which in, in most cases they, they have inherited. It's been in the family for generations. And when there are differences, those are often the result of politics and, and different policies. In the US, though, I think Society is traditionally being a bit more open to innovation and population, as well as farmers, they tend to have trust in the institutions. For example, when the FDA declares that a new technology is safe and the farmers see that it is effective, they will endorse it. Whereas perhaps in the EU, that is less the case. Talking about the policy side, the EU uses the precautionary principle the EU also has a, an approach to regulation, which is based on the process by which a product is produced. Whereas in the US, there is a tendency to look at the characteristics and the use of those products. So in, in that sense, there are some differences. But on the whole, farmers, they're looking to improve continuously, right? I totally agree with what Beno said. Uh, I think farmers all over the world talk this, the same language. And really generating value is their number one objective, generating economic value, of course, but also societal and environmental value, meaning being sustainable. And this trust issue that you raised is very important. As you said, Benno, uh, trust in the institutions, but it's also trust in the industry, trust in farming. And it's really something that needs to be worked on between farmers on one side and consumers on the other side, building back trust in this chain, in the food chain is very important. And technology is important too, to build it back. I'm thinking traceability here, of course. What about on specific areas like GMOs, pesticides, Benno? That's an area where there have been differences. The EU has had a reluctant uh, attitude towards GMOs ever since the technology was introduced. There are some contradictions here. On the one hand, the EU has been very restrictive in cultivating GMOs, but on the other hand, it has been approving many GMOs for import processing and the use in food and feed over the years. There's more than 100 GM crop events that have, that have been adopted by the EU. And actually, it imports large quantities of GM soy, for example, every year, more than 30 million tons. So I think that really highlights the point that the issue here is not so much about safety. It's more about acceptance and, and the politics around that, which have been more problematic in the EU. 
Marisa Sill? Yes, I, I agree. This is a major issue where there is difference between the US and the EU, but I don't think farmers are that different. If European farmers were allowed to grow them, they would grow them. Yeah. And in fact, they did in, in the past. When one uh, GM corn was authorized for cultivation in France, it was grown and it was actually pretty successful among French corn growers. Since then, they were not authorized to grow it, so they did not grow it and they found other ways um, to, to fight against uh, the, the pest against which the variety was directed. So farmers are pragmatic. They know what they need to fight against or what they need to work with. So uh, they, they use what is offered to them at the best price, of course. I think a point that is important to make is that farmers are no longer isolated as one segment of the food chain. They are really integrated into the, the food chain and are really responsible uh, for their production, the way that they produce things according to the specifications that are made uh, across the food chain to, to their customers and to the food industry, etc. They need to comply with that. So, of course, is if one of their customers want zero GMOs, then they will, of course, use zero GMOs. Or if they want a reduce, uh, reduced amount of pesticide residues, then they will have to adapt their practices according to that. And then they will have to... Uh, communicate around that and um, make public the responsible and sustainable farming that they do upstream so that the downstream stakeholders are aware of it and so that they can earn money out of it. Marisa, so where, where does this conversation sit in the context of the EU's farm to fork strategy? I believe that the farm to fork strategy sets objectives and that it needs to be a lever for developing new technologies to reach these objectives rather than being an incentive to stop using some solutions. Let me be more specific. The objectives of the farm-to-fork strategy are mainly to reduce chemicals, reducing fertilizers, reducing uh, chemical pesticides that are used in agriculture, antibiotics, and developing organic agriculture. If you look at all that, it means more constraints than initiatives to initiate uh, new solutions. But I think and I hope actually that what the people in the European Commission have in the back of their mind is that these objectives cannot be reached without the help of other technologies that are, for example, digital farming, that are genetics, whatever breeding techniques that are used that are biopesticide solutions, biostimulants, anything that is new, that is innovative, and that can stimulate plant growth and really protect plants against stresses like lack of water, like very high temperature, like hails, you know, anything. And, and there are actually many innovations in these directions that are popping up everywhere these days, but maybe regulation is not enough pushing them to the market. There are many innovations that, for example, protect grapevines from the damage of hail or frost, things like that, with solar panels. There are plant breeding uh, techniques that are used to increase the um, drought tolerance of some, some plants. But the European Union is still hesitating between uh, classifying these uh, new breeding techniques as GMOs or not. So if the European authorities want to reduce uh, the use of, of chemicals in farming, 
then some alternatives will have to be initiated and favored by policymakers so that farming in Europe can continue to meet uh, food security goals and continue to feed European people in a sustainable way. Otherwise, the EU will have to import more food. I doubt this is an objective of the European authorities because Europe is currently a major exporter of food in the world, uh, number one with the, with the US, actually. Benno, your thoughts? I think the farm-to-fork strategy is the perfect example of the way that the EU uh, tries to achieve an objective, an, an objective in itself that is fine, right? It, uh, yes, we all want to make agriculture and food more sustainable. We need to reduce CO2 emissions. So all, all that is fine. And, and, and Secretary Wilsack has recently made comments to that effect. The problem often is that these goals are very ambitious. They're almost always aspirational. They're often harder to achieve because of realities on the ground. And they're often prescriptive uh, in terms of regulation. And the targets are often arbitrary. For example, in Farm to Fork, there is this, this goal to reduce the use and risk of pesticides by 50% by 2030. Why 50%? You know, um, it's not really, not really very clear. And interestingly, in the last few weeks, several studies have been published that all point to the same direction with respect to the, to the likely impact of the farm-to-fork strategy. And that is lower production in the EU, lower income for farmers in the EU, higher prices for food, and a shift of... Uh, CO2 emissions to outside the EU. So if implemented, CO2 emissions in the EU would go down. But because the EU would have to import more food, as Marie-Cécile said, it might go from a net exporter to becoming a net importer. The global CO2 emissions are not likely to go down. So the, the EU itself has not really done an, an impact assessment yet, but uh, these have been some recent studies uh, that I think uh, are problematic. And, and there's one other aspect with this farm fork strategy. The, the, the EU has been very clear that it, it, it realizes that this is going to have an impact on European farmers. By using the level playing field idea, being able to continue to compete with producers around the world, the EU has been saying, well, all imports into the EU need to meet European standards. And that may be acceptable. You know, There is an external aspect with respect to the farm-to-fork strategy. The implementation of it may have an impact on imports into the EU, and it may have an impact on the way food is produced outside the EU. This is likely to become a serious point of discussion um, in the years to come between the EU and the rest of the world. Okay, well, it's probably a good time to um, get some real-life perspective from a US farmer. Last week, I chatted to soybean and, and corn uh, farmer Monty Peterson. He joined me online from North Dakota. Mo Monty is a director of both the American Soybean Association and the US Soybean Export Council, uh, which is a founding member of the US Sustainability Alliance. Um, and I started by asking him to give a little background in terms of where in North Dakota he is based, the size of his farm, and also so what he was growing there. I hail from the uh, southeast corner of the state of North Dakota. 
I am a fourth generation farmer in this area. We currently farm about 1,620 hectares of uh, corn and soybean. And uh, as I said, fourth generation and uh, kind of following the footsteps of my great grandfather, my grandfather and my father before me. In fact, I, uh, I live in the same house that I grew up in, uh, that my father also lived in. And, uh, and we farm in the very same area that my great grandfather immigrated to uh, back in the 1880s. So uh, production agriculture has been a, a part of our family for a long time. That's amazing. Now, obviously, the theme of, of this particular episode, we're talking about science and tech. You're, you're a big advocate of, of GMOs. You, you actually wrote a, a blog post about it on the US Sustainability Alliance website. So I was just thinking for those listeners who may not have you know, had a chance to read that, do you, do you want to just talk us through your experience of, of using GMOs and why you think they can help you farm more sustainably? Well, just let me say that uh, it's, it's my personal experience that I share. My initial involvement with the use of uh, some genetically modified crops, we've had uh, GMO or genetically modified uh, hybrids, cultivars, uh, varieties, a, a part of our farm operation uh, for quite a few years, not exclusively over the entire farm, but we utilize them where we, where we see, you know, a benefit. Back in the 1990s, we... Uh, we were experiencing uh, quite the problem with the, the flight of the corn borer. And, uh, and of course, that moth uh, takes flight during a pollination period of corn and can be quite devastating to uh, yield. You know, it'll chew on the silks of the ear and cause problems with the pollination of the corn. And, and therefore, you don't fill out the ears the way that you should. And, and our management practice uh, back in those days was to try and monitor the flight of that corn borer and to time insecticide applications to help control those pests. And uh, it, it was challenging. Proper timing of the application of insecticides is something that is not always easy to do. Quite often, uh, we would find that we would need to uh, maybe make an application more than once because we were unsuccessful on the timing the first time around. You know, but I think one of the more main concerns that I always had with uh, applying insecticides is, is the safety to, you know, to myself and to the others that uh, help me on the farm here and, and even uh, commercial application. I mean, you know, there's a concern of just exposing insecticides, spraying them on, fogging them over a crop and, uh, and, and, and what that's doing for the environment. But nevertheless, that, that that corn borer was doing some significant damage. It would often take uh, rob us of uh, 20, 30, 40 bushels of yield per acre. So when the uh, first BT event came to, uh, you know, a genetically modified seed that, uh, that addressed the corn borer, you know, we studied it for a couple of years, and it was, it was two, three years before a variety uh, with that BT event was produced to work in our latitude here. When we did have the opportunity to try it, we tried it on a very small scale, side by side with the conventional corns that we were uh, used to uh, using on the, in the field, and and we could put it, uh, you know, side by side to do some testing. That also coincided with a time when we were starting to implement uh, more in a more serious fashion some of the precision technology uh, that we continue to use today on the farm. We installed the yield monitors on our combine harvesters. 
installed global positioning uh, systems, GPS satellite receiving systems, so that we could record uh, yield uh, as we were harvesting and know exactly what the yield was in a particular area of the field. And so that was kind of beneficial because hand in hand here we were trying not only that new technology, but we were also starting to experiment with different cultivars and, and the inclusion of this GMO event in, in this one particular variety to see how that uh, combated the uh, problem that we were having with corn borer. And what was the impact of your testing? Did your use of GMOs have the desired effect? It didn't take long to realize that, oh, this had a significant impact, not only in controlling the pest, but we were producing, you know, more yield. We were, we were growing healthier plants throughout the growing season without the interruption of a pest that was uh, curbing yield and, uh, and the health of the plant. And probably more importantly than, than anything else is that uh, there was this safety component that we felt uh, personally uh, by not having to uh, try and time these insecticide applications. And that was the very first experience that I had with uh, GMO back in the 1990s. The second experience uh, was with a crop of soybeans. And that was, uh, you know, came uh, probably just a couple, three years later. And, and of course, that was when they first introduced glyphosate-tolerant soybeans. And we took an interest to that because we had had a long experience with utilizing glyphosate already. You know, we use glyphosate in uh, uh, post-harvest burndowns of weeds in the field. We use that herbicide as an alternative to tillage. And it was something that, uh, you know, we had very good faith in. It was a chemistry that, um, of any of the chemistries we were using on the farm, felt were was actually one of the safest ones to utilize. And so our experience started down that path with that glyphosate-tolerant soybean variety. And uh, over time, uh, we, we had the availability to uh, more varieties that were more suitable for our latitude here. And it's something that we continue to use today. And um, what kind of impact did, and, and in fact, has your use of GMOs had on the sustainability of your farming operations? I mean, it was, it was just really the beginning of an uh, opportunity to become much more sustainable on the farm because it affected a lot of different things. It affected, uh, you know, the amount of trips that we made over the farm. We were using less fuel. We were conserving soil in a better way because we were leaving residue out on the field. We could control weeds without tillage. And and I might say that as time passed, we saw much better design and equipment. And uh, we had the opportunity to uh, improve on equipment that could direct seed through the previous year's residue into the soil, establish a good plant stand. And all of those things just kind of went hand in hand. Sure. And, and I was going to ask you actually about the precision, ag, which, you, which you've obviously gone on to, to talk about there. I mean, clearly there's lots of different aspects that it, that it helps from an environmental perspective. You, you touched on a few there, didn't you, in terms of productivity, fertilizer use, fossil fuel use. I, I guess that whole combination makes a, makes a big impact. Well, every, uh, every little thing, some way or another, seems to have uh, some slight impact. It's the culmination of, of all of these technologies that really make it much more easier to be sustainable today. You know, we've had the opportunity to 
try and implement uh, a number of, uh, of technologies, I guess, uh, throughout the years. Uh, you know, c- currently today, we, we utilize some remote sensing. As I mentioned, we use uh, GPS tracking. Uh, we are mapping our yields on the go with yield monitors and creating yield maps, profitability maps from those yield maps. We're utilizing satellite imagery. We're also utilizing climate and, and weather stations, and uh, and we're preparing our uh, field prescriptions with the fertility analysis uh, based on smaller size fields, fields within fields, I would say. And of course, uh, we're doing some on-the-go sensing also. I think uh, a couple of the things that have made the biggest impact for us across the farm probably are, are machine section control. You know, we no longer double apply or, or skip. Auto guidance has, has created uh, this, this foundation for, and the machine technology has, has created this ability to precisely apply exactly what's needed, where it's needed, when it's needed. And, uh, you, you know, there's just, uh, there just isn't the waste that there was uh, in years past. There's lots of technologies that you've talked through there. I mean, what goes behind the decision process, you know, when you're introducing new technology onto the farm? Well, I think number one is, does it have a fit for us? Can we utilize it on the farm? Is it uh, not only economically sustainable, but is it uh, environmentally sustainable? My number one asset is the land. And, And of course, the number one priority is to leave this land in better shape for the next generation than when I assumed uh, management of it. We tend to look at, uh, you know, a lot of trials, a lot of university trials. We pan through the research, uh, decide how the application might work on this farm, or in some cases, just a segment of the farm, and go from there before we decide to uh, move forward with it. What about the policy decisions when new technology is being introduced? Is, is that something that you take into, into account? Well, I think, you know, we have the good fortune of having some very stringent research prerogatives that will look at, uh, you know, the utilization, the safety of it. Any decision that we make it has to be based on, on sound science. It has to have a fit for the farm. And it has to have, a, hopefully, a, a, a negative impact on our environment. And more importantly, probably a benefit to our environment in the implementation of, of, uh, of that practice. I mean, li- listening to everything you're, you're going through, do you think more needs to be done to educate those outside the farming community to help understand the technology you know, that's, that's being used in U.S. farming? Well, I think as generations go on, we become further and further uh, removed from the farm. You know, if we look back a couple of generations, uh, more of us were directly tied to the farm in some way or another. There's no question that consolidation has occurred across production agriculture. And as years go by, each of us becomes in some way, oftentimes removed from that direct relationship to farming. You could say that that may be a little unfortunate uh, in a way, and yet, that's just the way production agriculture has evolved. But I think it's, it's important for each of us, uh, you know, as consumers to, to follow sound science, to reach out to those that, uh, you know, that are in production agriculture, ask questions, learn about how our food is made today, how it is done, and have a, or gain a better understanding 
uh, of what all that entails. Just to finish off then, Monty, what, what's the key message you'd like our listeners to, to take from this podcast? Well, I, you know, um, reach out. Understand where your food comes from. Understand the decisions that are used uh, in producing that food. You know, I think there are good sites that uh, that can be visited that uh, tell the truth, the base, the information on, on sound science and the reasons why farmers do what they do, why they do it. Certainly uh, sites like the American Soybean Association has with soygrowers.com, ussoy.org. Those are good sites for uh, good sound information. And of course, uh, you know, also want to want to talk about U.S. Sustainability Alliance. And so I think, you know, those are all good key informational sites that provide direct information from the farmer. Tremendous. Monty Peterson, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Very welcome. We're back with Marie-Cécile Demarve and Benno van der Laan comparing the US and European approaches to technology and innovation in farming. Um, it would be great to get your thoughts on what we just heard from Monty. Marie-Cécile, do you want to pick that up? Yeah, listening to Monty was really interesting. And I, I pick up some technological innovations that he, he mentioned uh, on his farm, including uh, GMOs, precision agriculture, GPS tracking, satellite imagery, climate and weather stations, auto guidance. To me, it's really everything, but GMOs is really comparable to what's going on in Europe. The auto guidance, the GPS, this is really a revolution, I think, for, for farmers in Europe as it is in the, in the US. It makes their lives easier. It makes farming more precise. It saves time in terms of workload, etc. They really enjoy this. Of course, in, in terms of GMOs, Monty's mentioned the, the soil conservation impact, the, the soil quality, the, uh, the fact that fuel consumption was reduced uh, using GMOs, etc. Uh, this is something, of course, that uh, European farmers cannot enjoy uh, thanks to GMOs, but they have other means to do that. And of course, it's some of their objectives, of, of course, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, including through uh, machinery and, and equipment. So they do whatever they can to, to reduce that, also to limit the uh, emissions of other greenhouse gases, especially from uh, nitrogen use. As you may know, the, the, the soil conservation, improvement of the organic matter in soil is really a, a strong objective in Europe, and especially France, because France launched the uh, four per thousand initiative a few years ago that has the objective to store carbon in soil in order to partially compensate for the, the emissions of greenhouse gases. And France actually has set pretty ambitious objectives to reach these, uh, uh, well, it's carbon farming now, this, uh, this uh, expression that we are using, I think, internationally so that we find ways for farming to increase the, the carbon storage in soils or in the in plant roots. Uh, of course, forestry is, is very much involved in that as well. So what I mean is that I think in the US and in, in Europe, the objectives are shared of reducing our impact, the impact of agriculture on climate change through the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, also carbon storage or carbon sequestration in the longer term. But the, the, the tools that are used to, uh, to reach these objectives are not always the same, especially with the GMO aspect. Benno, what's your thoughts on Monty's um, interview? 
Yes, I, well, I thought Monty gave a, an excellent overview of the economic, social, and environmental benefits of using biotechnology on his farm. And no matter which farmer you speak to in the U.S., they will all say the same thing. And what we have seen over the last 25 years that an, an ever-growing portion of farmers have been adopting this technology on their farm. They see that it works, and now more than 90% of soybean and corn farmers grow GM crops, and they have been doing so for, for many years. And, and this view is, is shared by farmers throughout the Western Hemisphere with uh, similar adoption rates of, of GMOs in, in countries like Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay. What is interesting is that today there are 29 countries around the world that cultivate GM crops. About 42 countries import GM crops. Uh, most of the expansion in acreage of GM cultivation is now happening in developing countries. Yeah, what's, uh, I understand, Benno, you're right. There's a paradox when you look at what the EU is doing in terms of GMOs, you know, banning cultivation, but authorizing huge amounts of imports, for, uh, especially for animal feed. It's a difficult thing to understand. Uh, this is specific, complicated regulation around GMOs in Europe. Uh, it's, it's a different regulation for imports or, or for cultivation, uh, explaining the difference. In the end, I think it reflects that, in fact, the EU does not grow enough feed to feed its animals. And the, the EU is a major producer of meat worldwide has a big herd of livestock and poultry and really needs to import a big share of the of the animal feed just to feed its animals because it cannot produce enough uh, by itself especially uh, of course we're thinking corn and soybean the the protein need uh, in Europe is is really huge and there's been a number of of protein plans announced uh, across the years by the European authorities without any significant impact, I'm afraid to say, to increase the domestic production of, of plant proteins to feed animals. I think right now the what is going on is that we are shifting to a diversification of, of plants to supply proteins to animals in, in Europe, but it's going very slowly. And it's really difficult to substitute for soybeans because of the uh, high quality and, and uh, the price that is very competitive for this product on, on the market. So it seems that European market is maybe having an inward look, looking to what's going on right now. You know, maybe a domestic market is developing with some specific commodities that are grown in Europe uh, in order to feed European animals. But I don't see 100% substitution for imported uh, soybean and, and corn products. Uh, what is going on also is declining animal consumption in Europe. Uh, and I think in, in the developed world in general, which is not the same trend, which is actually the opposite trend that is going on in developing countries where animal products are being more and more consumed. But in Europe right now, the general long-term trend is for a reduction. So it means also that the demand for um, animal feed is it would also be on the decline. 
Okay, well, um, interesting discussion on obviously a uh, complex issue um, or, or set of issues. But um, we mentioned earlier about farmers the world over really wanting to access the best tools. And, and that's very much the experience of the next farmer that we're going to hear from. Um, this time it's Peter Vidson. He is a fifth generation farmer who joined me online from northwest Minnesota. And I started by asking Peter to give us a bit of background on his farming roots. Thank you, Russell, for um, the opportunity to join you guys today. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a fifth generation farmer. My ancestry uh, came over from southern Norway in the mid 1880s. Uh, my grandpa Olaf Bitsten. I'm honored to be able to carry on the tradition after the four previous generations. We currently farm about 4,000 acres. Our biggest crop is wheat, and I'm 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 thankful to be able to uh, represent the, the Minnesota Wheat Growers Association and the Minnesota Research and Promotion Council, which I'm a part of. So we grow wheat, soybeans, corn, and edible beans, which would be navy beans, uh, pinto beans, and black beans. And uh, this year we also had a few acres of canola. I uh, farm with my dad Tim. Uh, he's I would say two thirds retired. He helps us out a lot in the spring and the fall and uh, with any advice that I need. My wife, Kristen, is part of the family farm, and I have three daughters, Kate, Maddie, and Ella. And I'm hoping that perhaps one day one of the three at least would like to join the operation. You mentioned how long the farm's been there. I'm right in saying you just recently became a Minnesota Century Farm, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. That was in 2018. We were recognized as a Minnesota Century Farm, which means that um, your farm family has owned a specific piece of land and um, operated it for more than 100 years. And we actually have two different parcels that we have owned in our family for, I think the first one was about 115 years ago. So uh, it was very, very much uh, um, an honor to be considered that. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, obviously, given the uh, you know the topic of this particular episode, what what we're keen to just understand is what role technology plays on your farm, and and also if you can tell us a little bit about some of the practices that you're using as well. Yeah, well, um, the technology in agriculture, in particular, has just greatly advanced in the last two decades. One of the uh, the first major technologies that I would say we, we adopted about 15 years ago would be uh, the GPS auto steer. And um, this allowed us to essentially have hands-free steering when we're driving down the field. And it just gives us accuracy as into our planting, our spraying, our tillage, instead of overlapping when we're making passes and trying to drive as straight as we can um, just with our hands steering. The machine is actually doing it for us. And that helps us definitely eliminate some fuel costs, some fertilizer costs, some chemicals, the overlap, and uh, just makes us more efficient with our time too. So that, that's a technology that's been out for a couple decades now, and uh, it's very, very popular in the United States now. I would say at least nine out of 10 farmers uh, implement this. Um, to get started with that tech technology, it is fairly expensive to get invested into it upwards of five to 8,000 per machine to get started. But I think that cost gets made up quickly with efficiencies. And um, one of the next practices that we have implored about 13 years ago, maybe 14, would be variable rate fertilizing. It's a technology that uses LIDAR maps, satellite LIDAR maps, and also just our harvest yield maps to combine a map a guidance of sorts that will help us determine which areas of our fields are most productive and which areas are medium productive and which are the lowest productive. And we take those and we, we actually apply a higher rate of fertilizer to our higher productive areas 
and a little less of a rate to our lower productive areas. And we feel like this maximizes our yields on each of our acres and it saves us on our inputs. So we're putting less fertilizer down than would be a typical blanket prescription for each field. So to put that in perspective, last week, actually, we we had a field that we had soil tested and we had a map made um, to apply some phosphorus for our soybean crop next year. And it's a 70 acre field. And um, the map showed us that we only needed to apply 80 pounds of phosphorus for 16 of those 70 acres. So we had 16 acres that we applied fertilizer for and 54 about that we did not. We ended up not using about 4,000 pounds of fertilizer. The cost right now per ton of phosphorus is about $750 a ton. So we saved $1,500 right there and we were unable to maximize our hopefully our yields next year in our crops by not putting it where we don't need it and putting it where we do need it. The agronomy side of everything. I mean, you, how, how much have you learned along the way, but also from your education background as well, because you've got a degree in this side, haven't you? Yeah, I, uh, I graduated from North Dakota State University in 2004. My degree was actually general agriculture, but I had heavy emphasis on agronomy and soil science. And I always, always kind of had a passion in learning about um, just trials and just different experiments, I guess, with fertilizer or seeding rates or different things like that. And then, uh, of course, uh, maybe the the school of hard knocks is where you learn a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the different things that you you get to employ year after year. And it's been a great learning experience. Like I said, technology is just advancing every year in, in agriculture, and it's it's kind of neat to see where things are going. Just the the computer technology, and it's really kind of exciting for the future. And obviously, with the focus of the series, you know, being on on sustainability, can you talk us through how you're achieving it in your farming through some of those technologies that that you're using? Yep. So, like, I, I think the first thing, the sustainability in in how we're fertilizing variable rate is maximizing our profits on our farm, but our soil productivity as well. And you know, on the farm, to me, my two most important assets are employees and our soil. We have to nourish both of those to be as most productive as we can. And so I'm, I'm really emphasizing that the employee um, nourishment and the soil nourishment. And um, in terms of soil, you know, as, as we're talking right now, maximizing our fertilizer applications into the correct spots is one thing that will definitely help our sustainability of our soil. We're trying to implement a little bit of a reduced tillage atmosphere on our farm. And one of the things about reducing our tillage, if we are able to reduce one or two passes of tillage per season, there's two benefits that's happening there. One is on the front end, our fuel bill is going down considerably. Every tillage pass that we make costs us about a half a gallon per acre. And um, if we eliminate two passes over 4,000 acres, that's about 4,000 gallons of fuel that we're, we're not using, which is a huge savings and financially, of course. Every tillage pass that we make, we're, we're also uh, releasing carbon into the air. And that carbon is into the soil to help build organic matter. And the organic matter is kind of the engine of the soil is the way I see it. So that, that just helps feed the roots and feed the crop. And um, so I'm hoping that through this practice, we're going to slightly slowly increase our organic matter. Like I said, just making the soil and our farm more sustainable long term. The numbers are impressive when you kind of, like you say, when you add them up over the distance and, and then obviously per day and, and across the year. You touched on some of the costs, you know, a little bit earlier on some of the machines, but it would just be interesting to know what that kind of initial investment in technology that you have to make is to achieve 
the kind of benefits long term? Yeah. So like the uh, the auto steer, as we spoke before, there, there is some internal um, hydraulic components to each tractor that that is investment. I guess the newer machines the last uh, 15 years come from the factory ready to go. But we have to have a globe which actually receives the signal from the satellite. And those globes run anywhere from a used one from $1,500 to a new one is up upwards of $8,000. And then we have what we call our display inside of our tractor cab, which is essentially a computer, a computer screen, and it's a touch screen. And um, those same things, those vary anywhere from $3,000 to a machine to up to $10,000, depending on what, which technology you use. So yeah, a minimum of probably $5,000 investment per machine, up upwards of twelve to 15000 That's probably the biggest investment that we're making right now into our technology. Just listening to you talk through all the investment in technology, is it a challenge keeping up with you know new technology as it's constantly coming on the market? Yes, it is. Um, in a way, technology is changing so fast and, and um, it is hard to stay ahead of it, I guess, or it's probably near impossible. But it's just one of those things where you, you just can't do things the way they've been done in the past just because that's the way they've been done. Like I mentioned earlier, in terms of tillage, many farmers just what we did is we worked the field three times after harvest, and that's just what we did. But finding out that that's not probably the best practice, it, I can save fuel, I can help build my soil long term and have many benefits by doing things that um, maybe didn't need to do in the past. And there's new there's new technologies and tillage and different machines too that is making things easier to eliminate passes and eliminate um, unnecessary things that we've done in the past. So it's something that we're just always I'm always trying to learn new ideas and new technologies, and it's an ever-changing game. Interesting stuff. Peter, just before we finish off, what what would you hope our listeners will take from this podcast? Having the fact that I'm a fifth-generation farmer, and as I mentioned earlier, I have three daughters, and my hope is that one of them will continue the tradition. And So we are looking long-term. We are looking at sustainability. I guess I use this analogy, like I I don't ever want to waste one cent of my money on any investment or any input that's not necessary. So like fertilizing, we, I don't put more than one pound extra than I need on my soil because I don't really need to waste my money or spend that money on that, whether it's that or chemicals or anything. We're we're trying to be as efficient as we can in the resources we use. Maybe a a slight analogy would be um, in terms of of cooking and using an expensive ingredient like uh, caviar or something. If the recipe calls for a, a teaspoon of caviar, and you have another three teaspoons left in your jar, are you going to throw it all in just because you want to get rid of it or it's easy? No, you're going to, you're going to use what's called for. That's the way we look at farming. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything more than I need to. I want to be as efficient as I can and as sustainable as I can. And we're, we're looking to, to create the highest quality product that we can in the most efficient way that we can. And that's, that's the way, um, you know, that's the way our farmers are in this area. It's, it's, um, it's just doing things the right way and, and the best way possible. That's great to hear. Uh, Peter Vizden, um, thanks for joining the podcast. Marie Cecile and, and Benno, Peter talks about always keeping an eye on, on new technologies and, and also what's coming next. What, what are some of the developments and trends you're seeing coming down the line? Marie Cecile. I think modulation is really something going on that is a, a major trend. So modulation meaning not applying the same quantity of fertilizer or not sowing at the same density. Uh, or not applying this, the, the same quantity of 
say, uh, fungicides on one big plot, uh, but modulating according to the need uh, of the plant, uh, modulating according to the composition of the soil, you know, things like that. So for that, you, of course, farmers need to be well informed of the quality of the soil, of the type of weather, of the needs of the plant, etc., etc. So this is something that is developing right now. It's still small in France, but it's it's really developing with a, a number of um, software on the market and, and of companies that um, propose some diagnosis and also recommendations to improve all that and to maximize and uh, yield and giving recommendations on what plant varieties are best adapted to uh, certain conditions. So this is a major thing going on. I'm also interested in robotics. I think robotics is also something that is emerging. Actually, most robots uh, in France right now are milking robots. And usually dairy farmers are really happy with them, especially in terms of uh, workload. And they almost never regret this investment. But the second type of of robotics uh, that is developing is for weeding. So it's either mechanical weeding or chemical weeding, but precisely uh, meaning spot spraying the chemical where needed. And this is based on artificial intelligence and imagery where the the robot actually recognizes uh, the weed and and sprays uh, chemicals specifically on the weed and not everywhere in the field. So it's still emerging. It's mainly on small fields, uh, of vegetables, but it's it is growing, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, that this would um, would continue. Yeah, Benno, your thoughts? Uh, yes, well, I I think um, Marie Cecile gave a very um, exhaustive overview of the technologies that are here and that will be coming. We'll we'll see more advances in precision agriculture with the use of of, of satellite uh, sensors and all the things that that both Peter and Monty dis- discussed, but I. I think we will also see continued progress in uh, in the seed technologies that, that farmers will have access to. In the area of, of GMOs, what we have already seen in the last few years is the development and approval of stacked events that combine several single events that, that are drought-resistant, uh, insect-resistant, and tolerant to, to several herbicides all at once. And that trend will continue. We'll see more of that in the next few years. And then there is the area of gene editing, where we will see where there is greater potential. And, and in some countries, there are examples of crops that are already grown using uh, gene editing techniques. So we'll, we'll, that will probably accelerate in the next few years. To me, gene editing is, is part of precision agriculture. Most modern breeding techniques are part of precision agriculture because they are themselves more precise than the previous ones. For example, the uh, classical breeding or or, uh, uh, breeding that was uh, used, breeding techniques that were used in the 1960s, etc. I think the more modern technologies are, the more precise they are. And it's not only about robotics and, and digital farming, it's also about plant breeding and animal breeding and really genomic techniques are part of that. Marie-Cecile, before we let you go, if listeners want to find out more about the work that uh, Agriday are doing, where's the best place for them to go? Well, our website is agriday.com, A-G-R-I-D-E-E-S.com. 
Excellent. That brings us to the end of this episode. So thanks once again to Marie-Cécile Demarve and Benno van der Leyen, and of course uh, Monty Peterson and Peter Vidson for their contributions too. Um, if you want to find out more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please visit the website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us, and you'll find uh, plenty more information on all the topics we've discussed in this episode. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app as well. And if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please do give us a positive rating and review but for now from me Russell Goldsmith thanks for listening and goodbye